Chris is a healthcare technologist in the venture technology space with broad experience in platform development and domain-driven design. In this wide-ranging interview, we dive into Chris's perspectives on disruptive healthcare technologies and then dial in on risk mitigation through domain-driven design in the full software development lifecycle. Chris, how do you think about CICD with respect to the software development lifecycle and the risks inherent in rapidly launching software. Yeah, sure. So um, whenever I was thinking about, you know, my approach to continuous integration and continuous delivery, it really came down to software engineering leaders. They, they tend to always want to have the conversation around what does faster delivery mean for my team and what do we got to do? You know, I want to give features out to my customers, you know, quicker. And then it usually boils down to, oh, I have a build server built off of TeamCity, Jenkins, Bamboo, you know, pick your poison. And they said, yep, I got continuous integration and continuous delivery. And in, in my opinion, to be honest, I think that's a bit of a red herring. That really focuses on the, the end of the life cycle whenever you start, you're talking about continuous integration and continuous delivery. But in my opinion, you really need to start at the beginning and flip the conversation and, and talk about the approach to the development lifecycle, starting from the very fundamentals. Really, it needs to start with minimizing the risk even before a line of code is written. You know, if we take, you know, monolithic apps as an example, one small code change and you have to deploy the entire platform, there's a lot of surface area with that deployment. And so that's why typically people go through these really long life cycles of being able to spend months of developing and then spend months of testing before they even deploy something. It's because they're not minimizing that risk. But then, you know, it usually boils down into the next part of the conversation is microservices. That's the answer. What does microservices even mean? You know, really what you need to do is you need to take the take a look at the roots of microservices, diving into you know, dr domain-driven design and bounded contexts. Really what those mean, in other words, is the, that the components need to be based off of a, you know, a singular, isolated business purpose. Being able to say, hey, I have a service over here that only focuses on you know, the accounts or, on, or this other service over here that actually focuses on the orders. Once you isolate those things and one component doesn't need to know the inner workings of the other component, what you really have then is you have system orchestration between those that are basically really quick questions, not lengthy conversations. So, you know, one service is going to reach out to the other service and they're going to say, hey, does the user exist? And then it's going to say, yes. And then the other one's going to say, hey, do they have the funds? And the other one's going to say, yep, they have the funds. And then once you actually minimize it that way, you're going to be able to really isolate those risks. So as the development lifecycle continues, then you can isolate those different components and also to be able to deploy those very quickly and not have to worry about how much other things that are going to be affected by that. It's, it's really just isolating that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and DDD is, is huge right now because I think it, 
it really delves into the fact that, uh, you know, microservices versus monolith and all these, these are concepts that are really driven by organizational mandates and scale mandates. You know, it, it yep. wasn't built to solve a software problem. It was built to solve an organizational problem. And I think that often gets missed. And we get lost thinking that that was a software mandate and not an organizational mandate. I don't know if you see things like that. I have, and I even focus, you know, I've done some small projects myself with some small startups. And, and it really comes down to is, is, do you want to spend the time to be able to be able to segregate out that code, especially with like a two person team? And I really don't think, in my opinion, that there's a difference between building a monolithic app or building two small services. You especially, you know, start looking at the industry and look at some of these really open source, quick development platforms like Python with Flask, where you can quickly stand up a really quick microservice within minutes, you can really isolate that development where it's easy on a two-person team as long as you focus on, hey, what's the right tool for the right job? Yeah, and I imagine there's a, there's a move that direction because we're, we're now realizing that, that ops is moving so far right into you know, the development cycle. You, you can't be full stack without being a DevOps professional you know, no. as well, at least somewhat. And you have to interact with these things and you need to think about containerization and, and orchestration. It's just not a world where we run on bare metal anymore. No, I mean, look at Docker. Docker. I mean, I know that you know, people always say is, is like, you can't solve, all problems can be solved in software with another layer of abstraction until there's too many abstractions and then it's just insane. But I, I think there's something to be said about that where really as long as you can isolate the ease in which that you, you're able to do deployments and to be able to do this, the, the development process, it doesn't matter if you are a two-person team or a 50-person team. It's really being able to be as quick as possible. But one thing also I, wanted, uh, I also wanted to mention is, is with continuous integration and continuous delivery, risk is also minimized with the concept of you know, the testing pyramid of being able to say, I have a baseline of unit testing that I know that I'm confident that this component is going to work. Taking a step above that, you also have the service these, these service tests that I also can confirm that work. And then I have these UI tests that are also going to work. And that just ups the level of, of confidence that whenever I deploy, I don't have to worry about bringing down an entire, uh, an entire system because I missed something. I, I should have continuous integration and continuous delivery really are about quick feedback. I'm going to be able to write software, know that it's going to work quickly, and then get out into the use into the user world and see if it actually was is a viable solution and then be able to revert it back if I find that it's not. You work in venture capital as a technologist. How those things go together and what are what are some takeaways, you know, from your experience there? Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, I, I work in healthcare venture capitalists. And um, the biggest thing that I, I tend to focus on, especially from a technologist, is we tend to be, especially engineers and, and technologists and, and anybody versed in technology, we tend to gravitate towards shiny toys. And the problem with that is, is whenever you gravitate towards shiny toys, you tend to start with the technology instead of starting with the problem. I'm going to use blockchain as an example. As we were talking earlier, everybody thinks that blockchain is going to solve all the problems of the world. And that really isn't the case. 
Um, in, in 25 years or even less than that, probably in five to 10 years, blockchain is going to be nothing more than a, a different stack of technology that people are going to be building off of. It's going to be like a conversation we have today with if you have a, you know, a web platform, you don't say, hey, I'm using TCP IP. You just say I'm building a web platform. So that's really what I think, you know, with being able to go with something like blockchain and although all the venture capitalists are, are diving all over that, you really have to take a step back and you have to say, okay, what is the problem that I'm really trying to solve? What is this going to be disruptive? And if it's not going to be disruptive, walk away from it and then move on to something else. You could probably spend hours talking to people about how, you know, blockchain could revolutionize quote unquote healthcare. Let's just talk like, what are some areas where that's, you know, sort of actually true? What are you what are you looking for out there that, in fact, is disruptive? What's being missed in that? Because you can't just do the blockchain of X when nobody even wants to pay for X. If you look at the, the blockchain landscape, everybody's always talking about um, identity or being able to if you have smart contracts, you can start actioning things. Absolutely. But it seems like everybody, especially in the healthcare world, it's always about being able to provide identity information. But the, the interesting thing that I say that I think about whenever I think about healthcare is, is the government's really trying to push this concept of eventual, what I would call data liquidity or being able to have you, your information as a patient be able to travel with you throughout the, you know, the country, if, if you will. That's where I think blockchain can actually play a role because the government's basically saying, hey, all you healthcare organizations, you need to start playing nice with each other and you need to start having data go back and forth. Well, that's the perfect world where you don't want to have a single authority where you know, only one person holds the key to that identity. You can use blockchain there to be able to say, you know, it's a distributed identity where, you know, it, as long as it's honored, then the, the data is going to flow. And so you can look at, there's some things that are going on in the, the government and the ONC that, you know, they, they talked about there's a, there's a bill out there or a, a draft of a bill called the TEFCA or the, test, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. They talk about this concept of data liquidity and being able to have this utopian world of the United States where if I go from, you know, UPMC in one world um, over in Pennsylvania and then all of a sudden I move to California and I'm dealing with Kaiser, um, that I can just have my data flow. Um, but that's really where it comes down to is, is there's not a central authority there where then blockchain makes perfect sense and it can be disruptive because nobody to be clear, nobody, you try, try to go between providers right now and it's impossible because your data is not going to flow. That's unfortunate because the majority of your health decisions that a doctor has to make is based off of the historic context of, of you as a person and is you and, and you and your family. And if there's parts of that's missing, then they could be making potentially deadly decisions based, uh, based off of your health. So that's where some interesting things, with, like, particularly like around venture capitalists is, is like, all right, if the government's heading this way, how do we, how do we force, you know, in a, the, the rest of the industry to kind of move along? And that's also, that's, that's also kind of the weird thing also about being in healthcare as well is, is whenever you think of the government, you don't think of the most technological savvy people because they're usually behind the times. But 
the government's actually telling healthcare to get ahead of the times. And that's almost oxymoronic in a way, because that's not a way that you would typically think that the government's going to push an industry not to be, you would think they would tell them to slow down instead of try to become faster. On one side of the coin, there's a, a mindset that I must have people who work on my product to be my full-time engineers. I must have captive employees. And in our area of the economy and the cohort of worker that we work with, we're finding that people are on the talent side a little rebelling against that and that they're in a constrained labor market. There's access to people that you can't get as employees because they just simply don't want to be full-time employees. How as a maybe someone who's on the, the funding side, do you think of where must I have a full-time employee versus where can I have a highly dependable freelance engineer? I think, so one of the most important things that I think as a, as a individual uh, in, in life in general is, is to be able to understand and to be able to say the words, I don't know. And by saying the words, I don't know, you're acknowledging the fact that you're not an expert in some field. So where it comes down to of having full-time employees versus reaching out to the experts, if you will, is you're acknowledging the fact that you don't know. And unfortunately, in the tech industry, people don't like to answer, I don't, or don't like to say, I don't know. They like to say, well, I'm going to dig in and then figure it out myself. So it's a balance between having the domain knowledge of your employees along with saying, I don't know. So I, I am no expert in all blockchain technology. If we decided to start building a blockchain uh, platform, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to say, okay, guys, who's an expert in blockchain? So then I can marry the domain knowledge that I have here with my employees and also to be able to leverage the knowledge of somebody who is out there doing that kind of stuff. And, and by the way, especially in venture capitalists, we have the concept of fail fast. So if you're going to come up with a product that you think might be viable and then three months down the road, it's not, then if you have a, a somebody who is an expert in blockchain and you decide, okay, I'm not doing blockchain anymore and they're not an employee, you don't have to worry about, all right, how am I going to fit this blockchain specialist somewhere else in the organization? You can kind of say, hey guys, you know, unfortunately this isn't going to be a really good fit. We're not going to, you know, it's not a viable solution. And we're going to you know, throw you back in the pond for somebody else to catch you. You know, we're, what we're seeing is the fluidity of demand for experts. It does move and it, it moves in a fashion whereby, uh, particularly in a constrained labor market, it takes you six months or more to even hire and bring on someone who is, is a tier A professional in what they do and knows the domain knowledge and is interested in consuming work in that way. And to open up a possibility where a TRA expert who has an appropriate resume and who has the desire to work in a different fashion, that can be a strategic advantage. Yeah. And I would imagine as a funder that it's not a good idea in a fast moving, disruptive kind of industry to take investor funds and sit on them and wait and burn calendar while in fact you're trying to solve a labor issue that you don't know if you're going to have in a year. Not even a year. In three months, I might not have that labor issue. Uh, we, especially in the, in, the, in the organization I'm in, 
so I work for a company called UPMC and uh, we jokingly say that it stands for you people move constantly. And, and the joke in there is, is we're constantly moving from project to project to project and we're just going, oh, that's not viable. Oh, that's not viable. And let's move on to the next thing to find that new viable solution. So yeah, to be able to quickly reach out and say, hey, I need an expert in blockchain. I need an expert in, in healthcare. You have Fire, which is a new restful uh, approach to be able to have uh, data exchange. I need an expert in fire or machine learning. That's an ever-growing field that is insane to try to keep up with. What's the ideal senior engineer, technical expert look like? I have been gaining from the marketplace that our definition of a senior technical professional is migrating so quickly. What is this unicorn? What's the checklist that you know when you're talking to that person? So for me personally, whenever I'm looking for a, somebody who is in the industry, I do not, and I think this is the biggest mistake that a lot of technologists do, focus on the particular technology needs of the project. What I mean by that is, is if I'm building a product that's going to be in Ruby, I am not going to look at a resume and say, oh, they have zero Ruby experience. I'm not going to hire them. What I do is, is I look at key fundamental concepts that I think every good engineer has. Unit testing, domain-driven design, solid principles, things that are common across the entire stack, no matter if you're in Python, Java, .NET. Once you understand those fundamentals, you can move from platform to technology, and then hopefully by them knowing that information, you also have found somebody that's passionate because especially that I've interviewed people that are, that are caught in you know, the corporate atmosphere, been there for 10 years. They don't care about the latest technology. They're not, they're not true technologists, but I want a true technologist. I want somebody that maybe they don't know Python, but at least they've looked at it. Or maybe they don't know what Docker is, but they can at least speak to it. Maybe they don't know what Ruby or any other platform, they can at least say, hey, you know what? I know what a unit test is. I know what red-green refactor means. I know the approach. I know what a microservice is. They're, that's the true passion. That's what I really want. And then I take it a step further. And I recently read an article that the biggest, actually the CEO of LinkedIn said this, he, he doesn't look at coding as being the, the top skill that everybody needs. It's the soft skills. It's being able to acknowledge the fact that I don't know. By having that power of being able to say, I don't know something, gives you the ability to actually understand that and to go out and reach out to those experts and to be able to say, hey, I'm going to find out all I can so I do know next time that I have this problem. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.